0: you're listening to a podcast from the media motel coming up this week in episode 503 peter green the spiral into turmoil the lasting popularity of bootlegs and constantly moving the world of rock music roadies that's all coming up after fleetwood mac and the green Manalishi with the two-prong crown
1: That you need my love so bad. Love sneaking around, trying to drive me mad. Busting in on my dreams, making me see things I don't.
2: Last song Peter Green recorded with Fleetwood Mac, written after a dream in which he came across a green-coloured demon dog. Um, It was Fleetwood Mac's last top ten single in the UK until Tusk, nine years later. Mm. From 1970, number ten in the UK, Fleetwood Mac and the green man Alishi with the two-pronged crown.
3: That's a very uh, unusual record, isn't it? Or it's certainly unusual given the direction that Fleetwood Mac had been going up to that (laughs) point and indeed went in later years, I think. It seems a very standalone period in their history, doesn't it?
2: Certainly does. Um, Hello and thank you for popping in for Parish Council, (laughs) episode 503. I'm Terence Dackham and never mind Europe, She's in a worldwide Super League of her own. It's <laughs> Juliet Harris.
3: WSL, of course, standing for the Women's Super League. So that all kind of, you know, that all dovetails nicely. Unlike the European Super League, I was playing in a quiz league match or a quiz cup match on a, on Tuesday evening, which entertainingly, as it all kicked off that afternoon, if you pardon the pun, Um, the questions they always say at the beginning of the quiz, this quiz is written by so-and-so, edited by so-and-so, correct for play as of date of play, time of play. So correct players of eight o'clock on the twentieth of April 2021. By nine o'clock, it was not correct for players. The chairman <laughs> of Juventus had since resigned, which was one of the questions. And as someone had pointed out, um if someone had queried the question it would have been obvious that they had looked at their phone and therefore cheated. So um so it so but yes it was it was well, that was an what adventure, debacle, wasn't it? I know. What, a, what an absolute fiasco. It, mm. it You know, it, it's, it, it came, it went, R.I.P. Super League, you are with the Angels now.
2: <laughs> uh, way back in uh, 1971, I was in a band at school, as everybody mm.
3: um, was. Well, yes, um, quite. But st- I'm still interested in your band, Terrence. I still think two, it's special. Uh, uh, One day I was walking by the river in Twickenham
2: in Middlesex and walking Mm. along with our drummer when he pointed at a man sitting on a bench and said, Oh, there's my cousin. And there, sitting looking sad and dishevelled on a bench staring at the Thames, was his cousin, Peter Green. Mm. And we talked to him for a few minutes. And obviously, a long time ago, all I can remember was that it was an awkward encounter. He was clearly very unwell. And almost unrecognisable from a man who had been a star uh, maybe a year earlier, even just as Wow that. Mm-hmm. Now, the BBC has made available a documentary uh, originally made in 2009, Peter Green, Man of the World. And it's it's quite a story. It, it, it occurred to me that if someone was a fan of Fleetwood Mac in 1978 and was then cryogenically frozen and reawoken in 1977, they wouldn't recognise it was the same band, such were the changes. Mm. And Jules, those changes as seen in this documentary were driven by the dark clouds that followed Peter Green around and, and led him into a terrible spiral downwards.
3: Well, it's, it was really, I mean this documentary I thought was, I mean there's some age to it, but it was it was very affecting, I thought. And what I took various things from it. There was obviously a pivotal moment and and quite often you see documentaries where, you know, they go through phases, but it really was it seemed and I don't I didn't get the impression that it was just being made up for the dramatic purposes of a documentary like you know a plot twist Mm. type thing I got the impression it was genuinely a turning moment and the the other members of uh, the original members of Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac are are interviewed by the way I thought Mick Fleetwood came across as a really lovely man and a really genuine friend of Peter Green and whose sorrow they were all sad but his Mm. sorrow was I don't think he's ever really recovered from it either despite the fact that Mm. I got the impression that they were just all I mean the tale of Mick Fleetwood saying oh every time I used to get massively drunk I'd just get his tapes out and play them and tell everybody yeah. how good he was I found that really moving mm. and you know despite all of Fleetwood Mac's success there just wasn't you know they haven't quite got over what happened to Peter Green and the tale. I would recommend that anybody watches this documentary. I don't think it's a huge spoiler alert to say that everything right. went really very wrong for Peter yeah, Green. I absolutely. think that's probably pretty widely known. But it talks about the that night in Munich when yeah, I think they're on that's tour. That's the pivotal and, moment. Yes, isn't it? and 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 two fans. And I put, I use that very loosely, kind of grab Peter Green and Danny Kerwin and 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 take them to a sort of uh, some kind of weird art happening or something somewhere. It involves a beautiful woman, as these downfall stories always seem to. And they take acid and have some trip, and something fun. I mean, they said that the same thing probably happened to Danny Cohen as well. They they seem pretty sure that the two of them were both really quite mentally ill. Uh, pretty much the same moment almost and so they feel that that, you know the the people in the band talking felt that you know that whatever it was they'd taken changed them fundamentally forever and it was an incredibly affecting and sad tale really at the fact that although uh, the, the only counterpoint i could think of Watching it, there was only a little. I mean, I got the impression that his bandmates genuinely cared about him, genuinely rated his talent and were genuinely devastated by what had happened. And, you know, upset that he kind of left them and, and you know, went on. It's not like he went on to do a lot. He went on to have a really difficult and, and, and sad life. And to be honest, having watched this part of me was surprised that he only passed away last year, really. Mm, I mean, yeah. I, I couldn't quite believe what had happened. But there was a small element of me. And Noel Gallagher was interviewed and was quite interesting, but it was interesting. It was him from Oasis that were always criticised for being quite traditionalist. There was a small element of when they were complaining about, particularly the record you played at the beginning and how you know his playing had changed. There was a little bit to me just a little bit of an element of oh well he's just doing weird stuff now it must be the drugs that's doing weird you know that he's doing Mm. this weird music there seemed to be a little bit of resistance to wanting to grow musical although I might just be blaming Noel Gallagher for that I don't know but there was a little element of you know uh, of maybe a slight resentment that he was wanting to change musical direction but I think a lot but I think that was a small element but most of it was just the fact that they were just all they'd lost their friend they'd lost their you know their band leader they'd lost their inspiration and he was you know genuinely one of the best guitar players ever and 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 the idea and it's always the same, isn't it? These kind of weird Svangali figures, these weird hangers on, you know, that, that put their it's like they, they almost uh, the bandmates so they almost they was almost sort of singled him out. They knew exactly who they wanted. And I remember tales of um, I'm not putting Fleetwood Mac on the same level of fame as Elastica, but I think there seems to be a common thread and that I remember reading Tales of Elastica who were sort of one of the nineties big Tipped bands who were incredibly tight and incredibly sort of you know destined you know very talented destined for great things and Donna Matthews one of the two main songwriters the other being Justine Frishman that you read tales of how Alaska descended into sort of heroin hell essentially and and that's what completely undid them and there was people talked about uh, Donna Matthews as being a very she was sort of rock and roll in the sense she was genuinely talented and a genuine kind of person that was open to things and was very charismatic as a result of which she drew people to her and the problem is is that people like that they might draw genuine people but they might also draw a lot of ungenuine people Mm. who want to tap into someone else's talent and someone else's energy but not necessarily in a good way they want to take something from you rather than give something to you and I get the impression that Peter Green, who I don't think it's fair to blame these people entirely. All they did was, was, you know, sort of find a fault line that was probably already there. It was just so I don't think it's entirely fair to go, all oh, if it hadn't have been for these people, he'd have been all right. If you're that ill mentally, then something else would have triggered it. I, I'm not, you know, it's mm-hmm. it, it's difficult. It, there was, and I think there was a little element. Oh, this beautiful woman. There was a bit of male resentment. I think I, the fact that so much was made of her, mm-hmm. I found that a little bit frustrating. I must admit, but it was a a, a very affecting documentary and a, and a very sad one. And I'm sorry. Uh, one of the people said, and I, I can't remember which member it was, but he put it perfectly when he said, "I'm sorry that that he things for him." and i thought he was going to say went wrong and he said turned out as they did and i thought that was a really neat way of putting it that showed respect for how he wanted to live his life but equally acknowledged that it wasn't great really
2: it was very affecting i thought it was a very splendid uh, documentary Uh, uh, one thing i took from it was that peter green didn't ever seem to want to be a celebrity he just wanted to be i suppose celebrated maybe for his music um but yeah, this film was fascinating. The BBC had contributions from all the key people, as you say, yeah. John McVie, Jeremy Spencer, Mick Fleetwood. Mick Fleetwood, by the way, in a fetching purple cap and pink shirt.
3: He looked very uh, good. I thought yeah. I would usually laugh at people dressed like that, but I thought that it, you know, he pulled it off. I think it reminded me of
2: Rhoda Morganstern in New York in the mid nineteen seventies. Anyway, there was a consensus that. Um, everything began to change for Peter Green when they became so so, suddenly became pop stars really as a result of the success. The explosion
3: was not helpful to him I think
2: yeah. No I mean that reached number one in the UK late in 1968 and Peter Green immediately seemed to be hit with a severe case of imposter syndrome including Mm. wanting the band to give all their money away and but one thing I thought was quite curious was that Even after that, uh, for the next couple of years, from 1968 to 70, the music still sounded great for the next couple of years. He still had this wonderful, sort of casual, throwaway voice and, of course, fantastic guitar player. But, yeah, just that the catalyst Mm. of the massive downturn, that night in Munich where he was given, as you say, some psychedelic substance that had a completely disastrous effect on him, um, from which he ever barely recovered. And Mm. it is... I was just thinking when you were talking about Elastica there, and it, it just struck me. Um, I mean, well, of course, you know, he lost himself and spent years either homeless or in psychiatric hospitals. Um, and by the time he was interviewed in 2009 for this documentary, he, he was relatively coherent. He was, actually. I was surprised
3: right. at how coherent he was. But yes, he, was, he clearly reco- was recovering from yeah, something. Yeah. But um wonder what, what it is uh, that...
2: Drives people who become famous, but seemingly mainly in, in the world, uh, to to sort of generalise, in the world of pop or rock music, to turn to heroin and LSD and really heavy drugs. You know, if you become famous as a classical musician, mm. as a film star, as a theatrical star, as a writer, an actor, it doesn't seem to happen anywhere near as much. No. Does it? I wonder what it no, is.
3: May, um, yeah, that that's a really good question, I think. I'm just trying to think about why that might be. Maybe because you don't get screaming fans at classical music concerts do you really it's a very different genre you might get screaming fans as an actor you quite often hear of and i'm uh, daniel radcliffe i think has talked about how he's had problems with alcohol previously mm. the harry potter actor and i went i was dragged along by a friend thousands of years ago to a harry potter premiere and i think i might have talked about this before mm. and um and he, you know i remember seeing these 15 16 year old kids as they then were walking on the red carpet and all these kids just screaming at them. And I remember thinking, God, that you know, how do you stay sane as a young person during that? So so I can understand there is some level of, of sort of you know, adultery. I don't sorry, not adultery. I mean, um, you know, sort of alcohol abuse, that sort of thing. Mm. But I can I can like you say, it's the particular strength of the drugs. Maybe it's just the pop and rock music involves more obvious expression of excitement from the fans around it yeah, that you get the kind of energy taken from that and of course what you're and i think it's a charlie charlie watts from the rolling Stones saying once that traveling playing in a rock and roll band is five, twenty five 25 years of being in a rock and roll band is five years of playing and 20 years of sitting mm. around and maybe it's it's such an extreme life i think Particularly if you're in a lot, you know, sort of a successful rock band, because it, it is literally sixty or nought, isn't it, in terms of how yes. quickly you're travelling. Yeah. You've either got people, you know, giving you this huge adrenaline buzz, but when you're playing on stage down a half, screaming fans, and particularly playing sort of energetic music, and then you've got to come off that high and you've got, you know, hours of going home on a bus or sitting in dressing rooms or just coming down off that high. And, and maybe, you know, pop and rock stars are trying either to recreate that high or in the case of, of using heroin to find a way of evening things out, to find a way of, 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 you know, sort of trying to manage yourself into a state where highs and lows you're not having to deal with the the the, the difference between highs and lows because everything is just one great big sort of flat thing. I don't know. But mm. maybe it's that. I'm not sure. But it's 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 interesting you say about the Britpop link. And I've just thought of another Britpop link. Um, Louise Wenner from Sleeper's book. I think it's called Different for Girls. It's been it's been I think I read it as Different for Girls. But it's also been published under the name Just For One Day, I think. But it's her memoir of being Mm. in Sleeper, published about 10 or 15 years ago, I think. It's very good. But she talks about their early years of struggling to get off the ground. And one of the band um, works whose day job, they're all trying to hold down jobs and trying to get it to go somewhere. One of them works as a sort of a a, a manager, sort of a night manager type person in this hostel. And he talks about, you know, the residents there and one of them is Peter Green in Good this Lord. kind of slightly chaotic kind of, um, you know, it, it's portrayed as a slightly chaotic. There are some people there, with, with, you know, with drink problems mm. and he's there doing the night shifts. And she she says that he talks about, you know, Peter Green is there and they receive royalty checks for him and they sit there yellowing in the drawer of the night hostel wow well, and you well. just think wow exactly so yeah. so and that this would have been late 80s early 90s i think so yeah. so yeah. so yeah it's weird isn't it that, and mm. that maybe that so it's interesting the Britpop, I just find the Britpop link, particularly Noel Gallagher on that documentary, it's really interesting, I think, that the, the link through. But um, yeah, like you hmm. say, it's 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 the, managing the highs and lows. There seems to be more highs and lows to manage in the world of rock and pop music than they do anywhere else. Maybe because it's so, uh, who knows what world we're moving into now. I know we say this all the time at the moment, but maybe because so much of it. Uh, particularly sort of you know previously but particularly now before the before the door shut on everything last year uh, touring was the only way to make money so so maybe that was you know maybe the the performance becomes very key, so the emotions and the highs and lows around that are more pronounced than you know if you're going on a book tour or something like mm, that I, so. Guess so. I
2: guess so i um, so. i i having read um a biography of Sid Barrett last year as well. I Mm. saw an awful lot of parallels um, with Peter Green. And this documentary was originally um, made in 2009. It was re-released last year in 2020 after the death of Peter Green. Mm -hmm. Peter Green, Man of the World. It's available to watch for free on the BBC iPlayer until September 2021. Coming right up... The re-emergence of unofficial recordings. Bootlegs are back. Uh, That's right after. Bat for Lashes.
0: We walked arm in arm, but I didn't feel his touch. The desire I'd first tried to hide, that tingling inside, was gone.
3: really a person that takes records into a shop and says can you cut my hair like this I, that's never been my experience but I made an exception for Natasha Cullen from Back for Lashes when she uh, when <laughs> that strange album cover she had where she held the naked man across her I can't remember what it was called now but anyway she um something to do with a hunter I think if I remember correctly this is top quality research as always round these around these parts but I'd, I've always thought that she was a, a, an incredibly charismatic star and this was one of her early Early hit singles. Um, she has a Brighton link, I think. So I think she's quite she's quite near to me. Um, and I remember seeing the video for this. I think on our local news. I mm-hmm. think and uh, and being really struck by there's a there's a sequence where they're sort of there are people cycling on a road at night in car headlights. It's, and it was really arresting. And I think the movement to this song is is great. I really love it. And I think she's a she's a, a very underrated British songwriter. I think. I'm sorry there isn't the love for Bat for Lashes that i feel there should be she's made some remarkable records um multiple mercury nominations i think i think she's one of those people that's critically quite well acclaimed, but doesn't seem to translate it into into larger success, which is a pity because i think she's grand that was taken from the album i think it's fur and gold and that was back for lashes and what's a girl to do it
2: is a spooky video it's it's really really (laughs) worth watching i find her a very interesting character very sort of Mm. singular like pj harvey or kate bush
3: There are mm. there are big similarities with both of them. I think they're all very mm. much in the same pot, aren't they? They mm. they they plough their own furrow. They they don't strike me as being the sort of people who the man from the label comes and goes. Ah, oh, what if you could make this more commercial? I don't get the impression that you're going to get very far with any of them, really.
2: No. Um, bootleg records in the glory days of vinyl in the 1970s, they they were uh, for fans an exciting mm. addition to go along with the official records, uh, mainly it was the global superstars in the 70s Mm -hmm. that found themselves most widely bootlegged the beatles of course the stones and especially bob dylan with the bootleg album great white wonder in its plain white sleeve a must for dylan fans around the world in the 1970s you could pick up bootlegs certainly in london where i was at almost any record shop and As an aside, I've always found it quite odd that Richard Branson has always denied that his first Virgin Records uh, shops didn't ever sell bootleg records. And I've seen him get quite irate about Mm. this. When I remember going into his first store in Oxford Street in 1971, where they were all Mm. very openly on sale and... This week, checking that uh, my memory wasn't playing tricks, I did some, some searching. And on, on YouTube, there's a splendid BBC News report from 1971 all about bootlegs. And there, inconveniently for Richard Branson, is an assistant at Virgin Records in Oxford Street openly <laughs> discussing the bootlegs they have on including displayed on the wall next to him the Led Zeppelin bootleg live on Blueberry Hill. Um, George, bootlegs died away, um, with first file sharing on the internet where these Mm. recordings can be sold or shared digitally. Then streaming services now like Spotify, where artists now tend to release all these recordings officially to cut off the demand for bootlegs. But Mm. I think you've been looking into the fact that there's a bootleg rebirth.
3: There does seem to be, but a, as a, a sort of like the circle of life, as with the vinyl rebirth, seems to have followed with it, the bootleg rebirth. So I'm glad that the circle is kind of turning again in a in a similar way. Um, I, I own some bootlegs. Uh, interestingly, you can't buy them on Discogs anymore. Oh, okay. So Discogs is... is Whenever someone says to me, "What is this?" I suspect that a lot of our listeners might well know what Discogs is, so apologies if i see- uh, uh, I was going to say, yep. Yeah, okay, you can collect all those. Here. You can collect all those tapes whilst you're here. <laughs> um, no, I <laughs> I uh, I used to live in fear that someone would turn up at our house when I was six and find our packing case full of tapes that my parents had taped off their colleagues at work. But um, I um, you've thrown me off the scent now, Terence. So what was I saying? But yes, no, you you you're right to it you're right to put the fear of god into me thank you for that but um yeah i um i i i do i you know i i I'm a, a fan of bootlegs i think they're they they're an interesting thing aren't they they are they are a sort of a a a, a pool of stuff that you can't get hold of by other means and that's the the attraction of bootlegs discogs have pulled them that was it if i had to describe to people what discogs was i say it's a bit like um, it's a bit like record collector magazine and eBay combined. It's like Wikipedia and eBay for records in that it's a source in which you can look up records and see when they were released and see, you know, sort of personnel mm. details. So it's like in the But you can also then click on what ones are for sale and you can value your records through it and then sell and buy through Discogs as well. You can't right. get bootlegs on them anymore. They've just right, taken right. them off, which I suspect is a copyright thing, which yeah. is a real pain because there's stuff I really wanted. And you can still see them on the website you just can't buy or sell them which is very they, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt again but <laughs> are they vinyl cd or yes digital? Vinyl. Most, vinyl. Mostly okay. vinyl mostly vinyl mostly vinyl though again of all sorts um they seem to be making a bit of a comeback now uh, the, the, I think the most I could have this on the most traditional market for bootlegs has always been live recordings mm. I can give you a, a small turn apologies to podcasters who have heard this before but um, I bought a white my most memorable ever bootleg purchase was a white stripes live in Australia 10 inch that I bought when they were I would say pretty much at the height of their fame in about 2006 ish mm. I think and I had a job interview in Brighton as a 21 year old and I I, I, you know, sort of got there very, very early. The interview wasn't till three, and I got there at like eleven. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking round town, and I went to Wax Factor. Other record shops are available, but Wax Factor is a particularly good one in Brighton that sold. A lot of vinyl. This was long before vinyl really made a comeback. It was still mm. selling tapes at that point. When they got rid of all their tapes, I bought Talking Heads and REM albums to twenty p on tape. I mean, they just literally could not get get them off the shelves quick enough. And they had lots of vinyl there. I remember looking around and saying to, and finding this, this this bootleg. And because I'd never seen it before, and to be fair, I've never seen it since. I I thought, oh, you know, I'd like to buy this, but what if someone else buys it? So I said to the nice man behind the counter, "Oh, would you would you mind putting this by for me? And I'll come back for it." Later. Later, I've got a job interview. I'll come back later. And he went? Yeah, that's fine. I was said, I don't think even I said I had in an interview. I said I've got to go somewhere, but I'll be back. And of course, I was wearing my suit and my coat for my job interview because it was, you know, in the solicitor's office and all that mm. kind of stuff. Went off and had the interview for a job that I didn't get. And then I mm. came back and uh, had a look round the shop, picked up a few things I wanted to buy because I didn't want to go into this interview with a big bag full of things. So I so I picked up these things, went to the counter. And before I could even say excuse me i've got a wire. the guy just looked just looked past me and grabbed this 10 inch and when i looked at him slightly quizzically he just said we don't get many smartly dressed young women in here. And uh, every, every time I pick that record up on the show, I always see that man, that middle-aged man going, we don't get very many smartly dressed women. I was not their core market no. at that point. So bootlegs are an interesting one. In and there's an argument, you know, are they ripping off the artist? Should the mm. artist not be, not be, uh, not be sort of benefiting this, but equally, sometimes they weren't terribly well recorded. Sometimes they're slightly shonky life recordings. Um, Bootleg records, I think it's worth remembering, and not to be confused with counterfeit records, which are exact duplicates of previously released recordings, which are meant to trick people into paying more for authentic music. I've been caught by that before on eBay with a PJ Harvey album on C D and I'm still cross about it. I paid ten pounds for what I thought was an alternative sleeve and when it turned up it was the same C D with a different picture that someone had printed out. I didn't complain. Life is short, but you know, it was it was only a tenner, but it was still it was still to use my current word is your it was sure, it was still in crossing, but anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, Bob Dylan's great White Wonder LP, famous bootlegging in the 60s, but they're starting to make a comeback. Um, I I think on the basis, and this is an interesting quote here from Tim uh, Friedman, who's the owner of Culture Clash Records in Toledo. He said, first we thought the vinyl resurgence was entirely based on old white men and their nostalgia, Friedman said, Mm. but our youngest generations know everything to be instantly accessible at the swipe of their thumb. So they're truly putting the highest value of ownership on on ownership of something physical if it speaks to them. So this is the idea that you want something to complete your set. You want something that's unique. actually appeals to people who don't particularly want to buy younger people who might who don't want to buy you know rumors again particularly but they might want to buy Fleetwood Mac live in wherever in Mm. you know in whatever year if it's something that someone else hasn't got they want something physical well look at our non-fungible tokens that we talked (laughs) about the other (laughs) week people want something if it's not if it's not similar, and it and it's not a mass market thing particularly, I mean obviously we 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 talked about this, but there's one band, and we've talked about them before on this show, I think, who this show sorry this podcast who um, who are oh, the King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, who are, have a rather sort of you know maximalist approach to it to releasing things mm. anyway. They're the band that released crazy amounts of records like several a year for several years there mm, are remember, ma- yeah. mad amounts of king Gizzards and the lizard wizard albums out there they've launched an initiative at the end of last year on their website mm. Which is a bootleg... They've got a bootleg section of their official website um, mm. where they've uploaded master files for nine full-length albums, including wow. live demo recordings, a new rarities album called Teenage Gizzard, and their 2017 free download album Polygonduana Land. And uh, fans and labels and, and you know whoever they want, whoever wants to do it, you can download these files on the website, you mm. can package them into new releases, however you see fit, Um on vinyl cd tape however you want to Good do God. it memory stick as long as you send the band some copies to sell on their online store so i'll read you the band statement in full because i think it's great yo indie labels bootleggers fans weirdos we've got a deal for you the page says if anyone wants to release his albums you're free to do so below you'll find links to audio master files and cover art feel free to get creative with it if you like it's yours the only deal is you've got to send to some of them to sell on gizverse.com what <laughs> April website. whatever you feel is a fair trade is cool with us ideas double lps seven inches remix reimagine, covered up bizarre looking wax live box show, uh, show sets uh or tapes or keep it simple that's totally okay it's anyone keen to do this and then they put holy and a word i cannot say on a podcast thanks everyone who hit us up with their plan for bootleg records already we'll write everyone back asap and they basically said Um, send Mm. us copies to sell whatever you feel is a fair trade for the use of your chins and I think this is a very fly way of doing this I think because what it's basically doing is it's giving fans ownership of their back catalogue and saying Mm. you can make a mixtape you can make your own unique version of this just give us a few to sell and in a way the ones that are the best done, the ones that that, that you think are the most you know, sort of the most appealing, it's almost like market forces at work, isn't it? The ones that are the most appealing are the ones that will be the most popular, and the band gets a slice of it as well, but it gives people a chance to express themselves. So in a way, is this the perfect way of getting the balance right between giving fans what they want and giving fans something unique, yet not having it rip off the artist? I think it's a very shrewd move.
2: I hadn't heard of anything like that before. That is a very no. uh, interesting genuinely, development to see whether it becomes more um, well, widespread.
3: I, I think it's the most innovative band taking control of the use of its music since Radiohead's "Pay What You Like" venture. Mm, mm. I think is is almost as seismic as that. I think. Um, I, I, I was thinking ever
2: since uh youtube removed their 15 minute limit on uploads that was way back i think it was all good 10 years ago their site has been something of a haven for promotion of bootlegs and it's a really um almost amusing really because it's a kind of whack-a-mole thing because no sooner do they take unofficial recordings down than somebody else puts them Back up again, but talking Mm. about your 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 vinyl as as you just were, there was something rather delicious about buying bootleg albums in the 1970s. They were really popular in the punk era. I've got several Slits, Jam, and particularly Clash bootlegs, and they were so exciting to have at the time, as obviously way before the internet and instant information. They were wonderful bonus items to be able to play and often they were, actually back then they were often rather good quality recordings so usually the vinyl was really heavyweight and mm, yeah,
3: I Yeah, mean, I think it's what they call 180 gram now, if mm. anything bootlegs again were more innovative than the than the original kind of processing, wasn't it? I suppose because if you're doing it in smaller runs, I guess you can make it better quality. I
2: suppose so and rather like your, your King Gizzard people I know for mm. certain that at the time in the late 70s, Joe Strummer and Mick Joe had no problems at all with mm. these bootlegs on sale i suppose these days with the music business having so much emphasis on the business aspect of music mm, business, mm. artists and their management are looking to control bootlegging into a more yeah. efficient territory but that, i mean as as we said with king kisses that's fair enough it's their music
3: absolutely i do i, I completely understand and as you say the music business is particularly having to be more of a business because margins are so fine now. And that seems to have been, you know, sort of the online revolution has very much sort of cause that really so I think it's a, it's a clever way of what they're doing here, well, who knows if it'll catch on or not, it might not catch on but equally in five years time we might be, everyone might be doing this, this might be the tip of something new, I don't know but I do like the idea of make your own thing me and my friends often do compilations for each other of you know make your, what are your favourite songs by so and so one particular favourite game that some of me and my friends do is make your own white album onto one CD mm we do and you know that's that's a Taylor's all the time isn't it yes. and they're not all that different from each other i must right. admit there are a few songs that don't tend to get to get used very much but no i love the i love the idea it's, it's almost like mixtaping And then, I mean, I remember when I was much younger, I made long before I was DJing or doing radio. One of the most encouraging things I had was from my my best friend from school. I remember I sent the first mixed CD I think I ever sent from university. I remember she rang me up and said, That is, I liked it. It's, It's so good. You could sell that. People would buy that as a compilation. And that was weirdly, that conversation. We then ended up with the All Back to Mine series, where where which I think is now Late Night Tales, where um, Sean Rowley I think was started it or someone, where they got mm. famous bands to. Make a compilation of the songs they would play you if you'd gone back to theirs at the end of an evening. The songs that they thought were really good that you'd have to hear, possibly mm-hmm. in a slight stage of inebriation. So, so uh, no one heard our conversation on my thirty-three ten. So I'm not saying that anybody stole my idea, but I do like the idea. I think the eighteen-year-old me would be very excited at the thought that I could make a compilation of a band's music and other people could buy it. That you could mm-hmm. you could share it with other people. I, I'm I'm very taken with this as a concept. I, I might go and make one now. <laughs>
2: Well, coming up next, we've got The Life of a Roadie. Is it a Doddle mm. or Hard Graft? <laughs> That's right after Paul Simon. Went
1: to my doctor yesterday. I, she said, I seem to be all. said, Paul, you better look around. How long you think that you can run that body down? How many nights you think that you can do what you've been doing? We fooling? I came back My wife came in and she said, what's wrong, sweet boy, what's wrong? I told her what's wrong. I said, Peg, you better look around. How long you think that you can run that body down? How many nights you think that you can do what you've been
2: from an absolutely wonderful album it's paul simon from his first proper solo album wonderful songs great production in his voice never better mm. and the wrecking crew are on board Hal blaine that's great, Joe great
3: record i paid incredible. i paid one pound 50 for that in a charity shop in norwich about 20 years ago and i have no regrets at all that's a steal
2: Sissy Houston is on backing vocals. So the album reached Brilliant. number four on Billboard, number one in the UK from 1972. Paul Simon from the album Paul Simon and Run That Body Down.
3: Brilliant. Couldn't couldn't agree. I, my name is Judith Harris and I endorse <laughs> Terrence Stackham's message.
2: Uh, my most recent interaction with a roadie was not a particularly happy one um Mm. we were talking about Fleetwood Mac earlier and I was very lucky a couple of years ago to be invited backstage before they played at the O2 in London and I saw the amazing lacy tent that Stevie Nicks has constructed backstage at all gigs for her to relax in but as we were being guided yeah she really does big huge kind of gazebo and, thing i mean in n- nothing everywhere.
3: about this surprise there's fairy lights in it isn't there oh, I the, can tell. There, were, <laughs> there were lights and
2: candles and yeah smelled, the smell of incense pervading mm. yeah oh, um, of course we were being guided back to our seats and i, I stopped for a second to look at it in wonder on the side of the stage there were two great big closet side uh, sized uh, boxes holding all of mm-hmm. lindsey buckingham's guitars and i was mm-hmm. about 12 feet away and just looking from that distance when a passing roadie sn- sn- snapped at me saying don't touch them and uh, <laughs> despite having no intention of stealing lindsey buckingham's guitars i did retreat off mm. back to uh, you know where our seats were but that roadie was probably severely stressed, possibly only twelve hours into an eighteen hour shift.
3: Yes. <laughs> um
2: being a roadie, I don't think it's a job for you or me, Jules.
3: No, I'm not sure I could deal with that level of stress. Or that level of lifting, frankly. Oh, it's oh the God. lifting that I find I find rather um rather uh, alarming to say the least frankly the thought of having to get stuff from a to b um people think of the idea of being a roadie as sort of you know you're partying with rock stars no you're doing all the work that rock stars refuse to do you're not you're not a groupie you're not having the the fun you carry the gear you set it up you've got to manage the stage you've got to sort the sound out sell the merchandise drive the bus and basically keep the show on the road hence why i presume it's called roadie. Um, mm-hmm. You don't. You, the roadies don't like being turned, used, being called roadies. Now it's a rather derogatory term.
4: Yeah. Um.
3: They prefer individual t- duties. So, and I think that's right. Actually, the generic term I suppose is roadie. But actually, you know, you might be a tour manager. You might be running front of house as a sound engineer. You might be the light tech. You might be merchandise manager. Um. You know, it's much more sort of individual roles. The hours are insane, like you say. And funny enough, a, a friend of mine from primary school who's currently running a pub near to me, which is a very nice pub, indeed. do please go to the Prince Albert if you're in the Greater Hastings area. It's excellent. Um, it, it was meant to be their sort of sideline from his job as a tour manager mm. for big bands, including... Primal Scream, I think, is probably the one mm. that most people have heard of. And uh, he's a very lovely chap, as is his wife. They're very nice people. And the original plan was they were going to sort of run it as a kind of... They, they weren't even that sure about running it as a pub. They might have converted it into a house. And they're very glad now they didn't. Because, of course, when everything stopped in uh, at the beginning of 2020, they were at least still able to open the pub at points that year, whereas they, they he couldn't go and be a roadie. But, yeah, when he... I, you know, I sometimes ask him to sort of tell me about life. And, yeah, it sounds very hard work, particularly Mm -hmm. if you're at a management level because you're having to... um... You're having to sort of herd cats a bit, shall we say, at times <laughs> as well. And uh, the, the more high-profile bands are the the the, the harder the, the more cats there are to herd, and the more herding you have to do. Um, this the, the, um, Meg McRae, who's quoted in this article on MentalFloss.com, not a website I was that familiar with, but anyway, uh, Meg McRae is a production coordinator, and this is big stuff. So she's been on tour with uh, Bon Jovi and the Eagles, so big acts, you'd say, world famous acts. Typical day for her starts with a 6am bus pickup cool. after which she will then set up a temporary production office at the venue which I assume is in a shed or some sort of porter cabin or something not terribly great, I suspect. Mm. She spends all day basically pro- solving problems so presumably, I suspect that all of those bands not, might not all be in the place you want them at the time you want them. So she's trying to deal with that. Books flights, hotels. You've got to make sure as well as a manager that everybody else in your crew is alright, is looking after themselves has eaten is doing what they should be doing that sort of thing her day finishes about 1 30 or 2 a.m so so her day is basically 20 hour days they're not in the big unless you're working for an a-plus performer most of your of your roadies and you know most of your crew are you know, you might be sleeping on the floor of a shared hotel room. You might be sleeping in the van. You know, you you, you won't be sleeping anywhere glamorous. There's, privacy is not really going to be your thing. Um, uh, One of the members of Telekinesis says you wouldn't believe how insanely messy a van can get after a six week tour of the country. I think I can believe that, mm. actually. Um, You know, every surface has stuff on it. Um, Having said that, you know, roadies, will. will why do they do it? because they love music so much they don't want to work in any other field and and you know i can understand you're you know you're the closest that you can be to to you know if you're particularly if you're touring with a band you like you get to see them night after night don't you up close you get mm. to see sound checks you get access to these people that you wouldn't get otherwise so so i can totally understand why it's why it's appealing Good luck trying to uh, trying to keep your personal life in 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 any kind of order. Mm. And I think it's it's very telling that roadies tend to be younger, partly because of the physical demands, and also because you're less likely to have a family. I think mm. I think it's really hard. I think it's actually. I mean, my friend that is his tour manager said that it's been really nice for him to spend time at home with his wife yeah. and their, their young. They're young uns, because he said, you know, actually this part of it's been really nice. Although it's been a worry of how they're going to kind of cope, it's been, you know, it's been great to have that time, which he otherwise wouldn't get. He's about my age, you know. His family, his family are not are not old, you know. Mm. They're, they're, it's it's the sort of it's the it's the golden time when your kids are young. So, so it's um it's. You know, it's I I can imagine that being a roadie is incredibly stressful and just a physically demand. It's just draining, isn't it? And I can imagine if you're if you're working with egos, it must be really frustrating to want to set things up and have, you know, people falling about and God knows what. But having said that, if you are a music fan. It probably is one of the best jobs you can do without actually having to bother to on the guitar, I think, because you get, to, mm. you get to just be up close with bands. So, yeah, not a job I think i would be cut out to do, but I can certainly see the pleasure in it.
2: When I was young and working in the music business, I was always rather in awe of Rhodes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it was a really tough life, even more so in the 70s guess. and 80s, when essentially... Everything had to be drugged, um, drugged. Everybody <laughs> did have to be drugged. Um, <laughs> yeah,
3: that's a Freudian slip, yeah, that was, that was It, it
2: was dragged off all trucks, um, yeah. manually. Um, and there were no hydraulic lifts in the 70s and 80s, and then everything loaded back up again. I can remember. Seeing roadies in the in the, those sort of seventies and eighties days setting up uh, gigs I was involved with, and then clambering up scaffolding mm. to fit up lighting rigs and climbing mountains of unsteady stacks of speakers, when the idea of health and, and safety would have been scoffed at. And mm. uh, you, you reminded me you were talking about the that uh, woman who is a roadie. I was reading a really yes. Fascinating interview in your The Guardian this week mm. with a, a woman who claims to be the first female roadie ever, and she was working with Elton mm. Lenny Kravitz, David, others, mm. uh, starting in the 1970s. And it, it's particularly interesting when she was talking about the, the substantial levels of stress road crews suffer, and I doubt oh, that's gosh, changed yes. from the 70s to the no. to current day either. So, so that, no, that's n- not a got job worse. for you.
3: Absolutely. worse, no, yeah, probably has. Well, well yeah. probably because, like, like we said earlier on in the last subject, the stakes are higher than ever, aren't yeah. they? Because because everything's, well, until the world stopped, everything, you know, much more emphasis is put on the live sort of show, isn't it, really? And and it's much more of a money spinner and, and has to go well. I mean, again, that Demi Lomato, Lovato documentary you watched the other week, I mean, all of that stuff, all those big shows, yeah. that's got, like, clockwork, don't they? And that must be... You know, that must be incredibly draining and incredibly stressful and incredibly pressured because you are if you're working at a top level with people like her and Gaga and Madonna, you're in the biggest business in the world, aren't you? And whilst that might be more glamorous than working in high level city trading or insurance, the the level of pressure is probably not dissimilar in terms of, you know, pass or fail. And, and, if, and if it isn't a success and your job's probably on the line.
2: And try not making any mistakes in in
3: hour 19 of a 20 hour day, you know. Well, quite, absolutely. It's particularly when when like that tour manager woman, when your job is so wildly varied, and yes. probably when you're having to deal with people who aren't in it, you know. If a band's played a show and they come off, you might not, you know, they might not be the easiest people to deal with at day, nine, hour 19 or 20 of your days. So, no. so yeah, it's a hats off to the to the uh, to the road crews everywhere.
2: Absolutely. Well, thanks very much for listening this week. Good to have you along.
3: As always, uh, thank you. It's nice that it's not just us here, that you're here with us too. And uh, Jules, um, assuming you're not applying
2: for the manager's job at Tottenham Hotspur.
3: <laughs> I was going to say they have approached me, but I'm not that interested.
2: Oh, so you'll be free to appear on the radio this week then?
3: Thankfully, yes. I will be I'll be doing a show this week. I will be... Um, I will be doing smooth sailing. That's the thing I do. Smooth sailing 49, which I can't quite believe, mm. from 7 to 9 p.m. at uh, mixer.com forward slash Juliet-Harris. Or so if you just go to mixer.com, which is m-m-i-x l.r.com. You can uh, find my search for my name on there and you find my channel. You can uh, and use the show reel which has got previous shows. Some of the titles are misspelt. We, we, you know, we we friends don't tell other pe- other friends that, uh, that, that their that their files are misspelt. You know, we just no,
2: uh, of course uh, not. Just, it would
3: do just, such a thing. I was going to say uh, n- nobody that I would associate regularly. No. With. So um so so there's that. But yes, you can come along either listen at your leisure or listen with us on Sunday evenings. And uh, it's uh, it's a nice group of people that listen and we do yacht rock uh classic pop mor just stuff that's fun and not massively demanding that's pretty much the brief isn't it so uh so yeah that's that's uh, that's what we do on sunday evenings
2: now i really like this it's a really unusual track uh, to play us out
3: yeah, I'm glad that you like this, actually. I can I get that this might not be everybody's cup of tea, so I'm glad that you like it, because I know that mm-hmm. our our tastes are a little bit divergent occasionally, mm-hmm. so I'm delighted that you're on board with this. Um, there's a chap called Geoffrey Lewis, who's played under various different a dress bands. I had the pleasure of seeing him about five years ago, I think, 2016, when um he played with his band Lost Bolts. Um, at the then-functioning venue of the Observer Building in Hastings, as part of a birthday weekend which involved f- uh, three different gigs and four different outings, I think so. It was it was pretty wild, and we got to see him play, and it was brilliant. I I wasn't that familiar with them, but my friend Tim insisted that we go because he said we would really enjoy it, and it was mm. absolutely brilliant. I loved it, and I particularly enjoyed this song. Um, it's it's a it's a very strange tale. It goes to some slightly bizarre places, which I thought <laughs> was in was in keeping with our Peter Green. Documentary and yeah, the, and the general sort yeah. of uh, general thing this week. I, d- I did a quiz earlier this week where um, you had to work out the real name of Bonnie Prince Billy, and uh, it, it was it was the, the, what what we sort of place links these people. And of course, the answer is Oldham because it's Will Oldham. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a strange tale of Jeffrey Lewis bumping into who is seen to be his idol, Will Oldham, when he's trying to record an album, and it becomes a sort of meditation on you know how long do you keep going as a semi-successful artist before you realize you're not going to be completely successful and pack it in and it goes into a very strange is it a dream is it not a dream but i i, I just love the way that it's it's relentless it just doesn't he's just battering these words at you i saw him do this live he didn't he didn't have it written down he didn't have an autocue or anything he just he just you know sort of battered us into submission with this this endless tale and uh, i i just love this i think it's like you say. it's so unusual And I get that this might you know this might drive if you if you don't like lo-fi things this will probably drive you up the wall I really like it this is uh, this is Jeffrey Lewis and I think this is just recorded as Jeffrey Lewis and uh, this is Williamsburg
5: Will Oldham Horror today I went to major maths to remaster my old album and on the L train in the morning I was pretty sure I saw Will Oldham he was wearing the same sunglasses he had on stage at the Bowery Ballroom had he come to walk among the Williamsburgers of his kingdom and like the burgers of Calais will have Sacrifice be demanded to offer up our dreams and beg for mercy empty handed, and hapless in our hipness, crowded five to an apartment, relegate our dreams to hobbies and deny our disappointment. Cause the stones in 65 want total satisfaction, kid. But the stones in 69 see grace in just getting what you need. But if that's a victory, then I'd hate to see what I'd look like defeated. Cause I know there are those who walk among us who seem to get their dreams unimpeded. Like today when I went to Major Maps to remaster my old album on the L train in the morning. I was totally sure I saw Will Oldham He was wearing the same big sunglasses he had on stage At the Bowery Ballroom, had he come to walk Among the Williamsburgers of his kingdom And you might say now there's a guy Who seems to have the world laid out before him Or you might say he's just a rich kid or a fascist Or a charlatan, but either way you say it If you look at indie rock culture you really can't Ignore him, And even if at first dismissive After some listens you'll enjoy him I was thinking this on the L train, intent on Bursting my own bubble, how long should An artist struggle before it isn't worth The hassle, and admit we are not Fit to be the one inside the castle. This quest for greatness, or at least hipness, just a scam and too much trouble. But then what makes one human being worthy of an easy ride? Born to be a natural artist, you love or hate but can't deny. While us minions in our millions tumble into history's chasm, we might have a couple laughs, but we're still wastes of protoplasm. Like today, I was gonna waste some time and money to remaster some old album. And on the L train in the morning, I was pretty sure I saw Will Oldham. He was wearing the same big rock star sunglasses he had on stage at the Bowery Ballroom. Had he come. To see the strife here in the gutters of his kingdom, where us noble, starving artists are striving hard to feed our egos. Our mothers like our music, and our friends come see our shows. And if our friends become successful, we'll consider them our foes. Go home to our four roommates after paying big bucks for rock star shows. What a nightmare, what a horror. I don't want no part of this. Just get me off this crazy ride. I'd rather kill myself, I'd rather just relax or not exist. But you say you want to do an email interview. What the heck, I can't resist. Hey, Ma, guess what today? I did another magazine an interview, honey, that's great, you're really famous, yeah, and I'm 27 too, I kind of thought I was going to grow up to do stuff that would benefit humanity, but it's getting harder to tell if this artist's life is even benefiting me, because today I was going to waste some time and money to remaster some dumb old album, and right there, crowded on the L train, I was totally sure I saw Will Oldham. he was wearing the same big rock star sunglasses he had on stage at the Bowery Ballroom, and since I was feeling in need of answers, I just went right up and asked him, I said, Will, Bonnie, Prince, Palace, whatever, what do you think about it, is it worth being an artist or an indie rock star? are you better off without it because you know maybe the world would be better if we were all just on creative drones no dead childhood dreams to haunt us a decent job a decent home we have some extra time. We could do real things to promote peace. Become scientists or history teachers or uncorrupt police at least. So come on, Will, you gotta tell me. I grabbed and shook him by the arm. The L train was leaving Bedford with 10,000 white 20-somethings crowded on. He opened his mouth to speak, but it was lost in the rumbling of the wheels. We were thrown together in a corner and I yelled, tell me, man, for real. You're living comfortably, I assume, even if you're not quite a household name. You've reached a certain high level of success and critical acclaim. And the L train got the first avenue and a bunch of people Piled out. I was staring into his sunglasses, and I was really freaking out. I said, Bill, Steamboat Willie, Bonnie Prince, of all this shit, you're like the king of a certain genre, but even you must want to quit. Like, if you hear a record by Bob Dylan or Neil Young or whatever, you must start thinking, yeah, folks like me, but I won't really be that good ever. And then the thing is, I'm sure even Bob Dylan himself, too, probably stays up some nights wishing he was as good as Allen Ginsberg or Camus, and he starts saying, dude, I'm such a faker, I'm just a clown who entertains. And these fools who pay for my crap just have pathetic puny brains, and then Camus wished he was Milton too, or whatever, you know what I'm saying, so Will, will you be straight with me now, it's just us two on this train, cause I was gonna spend some time and money today to remaster some dumb old album, and I saw you here on the L train, and I was like, hey, is that Will Oldham, you must at least have some perspective, cause it's like living in this town, I get so confused and wound up and uptight, and I just don't know up from down, and then the L train got to the last stop, and the subway was deserted, there was a long moment of silence, and I let go of his shirt, and I started to think that maybe I'd made some kind a big mistake and I tried to walk out onto the platform but by then it was too late his sunglasses seemed to grow darker and still he hadn't even spoke he just came right up there behind me and put his hands around my throat and he threw me down onto the concrete and kicked my face in with his boot and dragged me down onto the train track and tied my hands back with his coat and I was happily slipping out of consciousness as he was happily slipping down my jeans and he was bitch slapping me and humping me and I slipped off into a dream so it might have just been a delusion but I thought I heard him say something like as then he climbed back up and ran away so I lay there in the darkness on the train track cold and broken the hours passed and I thought well maybe I won't remaster that old album and then I started thinking well maybe it really even hadn't been Will Oldham even though he did hold my arms just like Will sings in a sucker's evening but whether it was him or wasn't I could forget the words he'd spoken I know it sounds really bad and sexist it's a dumb analogy but at that moment on the train tracks it made a lot of sense to me maybe it's just some kind of natural divide like two types of mental gender that's gone on in all societies in one or another some folks that are born to conquer maybe I would if I could but as everyone knows in time you're the ones who can really put out something good
3: you've been listening to a parish council production.